3: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Rhonda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to have with me Dr. Nicole Seymour to tell us about her book titled Glitter, published by Bloomsbury as part of the Object Lesson series in 2022. This book does a whole bunch of things in a teeny tiny beautiful package um, because glitter, turns out, is really complex. Um, we often dismiss it as just shiny or just annoying, but there's really a lot else in here to talk about. So, Nicole, thank you so much for being on the podcast.
1: Yes, I'm excited to be here.
3: I'm very excited to have you. Could you start us off, please, with an introduction of yourself a little bit and explain why you decided to write this book?
1: Yes, my name is Nicole Seymour and I'm a glitter apologist that is my unofficial title. Um, my official title is a Professor of English and Graduate Advisor for Environmental Studies at California State University, Fullerton. And I decided to write this book in part because I was really troubled but um, fascinated by the backlash against glitter that started, I'd say about five years ago in the Anglophone world. Um, and I, c- I can say more later about why it was troubling to me, but basically I was just really viscerally moved to give glitter some positive or at least thoughtful attention at a time when it was being really maligned. Um, and the broader explanation is that I had just finished writing a book um, called Bad Environmentalism, which is about how environmental artists and activists have been um, recently rejecting the kind of gloom and doom approach uh, that has dominated mainstream environmentalism for a long time and when this backlash against glitter started happening, specifically, I should explain that the backlash was around um, the uh, the fact that most glitter um, has a plastic component and you know potentially um, is a, a pollutant. Um, so when that backlash started happening, I just sort of felt like you know here we go again. This is um, that you know kind of everything is terrible, even the most seemingly fun or innocuous or harmless or frivolous thing. Um, you know, felt like a very familiar um, what I call killjoy environmentalism um, kind of narrative. And so since I'd already been pushing um, back against that in in that book about environmentalism, when this glitter backlash happened, I was just kind of like, this project is naturally flowing from there.
3: Hmm. Brilliant. Thank you for giving us that foundation and introduction. Um, in a similar vein, getting into kind of the book itself, for anyone who's not familiar, object lessons are these really cute little black cover colored books that have a pretty design on the front. And they're not. I mean, they're slightly bigger than my hands, but they're pretty small, right? They're not like massive textbook books. So with any analysis, obviously figuring out the scope of a book is a challenge. For a book of that size, I imagine it's even harder. So can you briefly introduce us to the scope you did decide on and then talk us through how you came to that decision?
1: Yeah, so it's easy for me because I'm a a scholar of contemporary literature. And um, that means I get to be pretty lazy most of the time. And um, I'm sort of kidding, but, um, you know, I don't tend to go into archives and and that sort of thing. But um, Um, And and I was, as I was noting, um, a couple minutes ago, the book really grew out of this glitter backlash that had been happening um, for just the the past um, couple years. Um, And so I started with this pretty um, contemporary scope. um, And and a lot of the text, uh, primary text that I look at, you know, like Maria Carey's film Glitter, the the fine uh, cinema classic Glitter, um, you know, a lot of the things I was looking at were from, you know, mostly the past. Um, so one of the things I did was to try to give readers a, a bigger historical sense of glitter in, in a couple ways. So one thing I did was to look into the etymology of the word, and uh, which in English dates back to uh, the 1300s. And among other things, I learned that glitter was a verb before it was a noun, which means that um, at least for a couple hundred years, people were thinking of it as a quality Um, before they were thinking of it as an object or or even a product. And I also ended up talking to some historians of fashion and cosmetics to try to locate glitter in a longer history of self adornment, which, you know, ranges from, you know, everything from women putting diamond powder in their hair to using egg whites to make their skin glow. There was a moment where that was a a trend. And, um, you know, of course, men and non-binary people have done all sorts of things as well, you know, powdered wigs and and all that. But um, the point is that something, like you know the glittery eyeshadow we think of today or the body glitter we use today is just you know one instance in a long line of humans drawing attention to their to their bodies and, and capturing the public eye. So that that's kind of the historical scope and then um, the specific topics I decided to cover just really fell into place in really fun, random ways. So I was at a bar in New Mexico, and they had a glitter beer on the menu, and I was like, "Well, I guess the universe is telling me I have to write about glitter beer." So that became a, a little micro chapter uh, unto itself. Um, but yeah, I definitely had to stop somewhere because um, yeah, I was kind of spiraling out, and there was moments where I was like, "I should write about sequins, or I should write about tinsel," and then you know, I had to pull back and think about the the Objects Lessons uh, book series and how. It you know, those could be their very own separate books. Um, So long story short, I wanted to strike a balance between starting with this very specific substance that we would all agree to call glitter. So either the craft material or the cosmetic material, and then to try to um, broaden out a little bit to get us to think more broadly about glitter as a quality and even a strategy.
3: I find that deeply entertaining to just kind of imagine, you know, being sat at a desk going, oh, what about this? Oh, what about this? No, hang on, hang on, hang on. You know what? I'm going to
1: go have a break. Oh, look, now there's clipper beer. (laughs) (laughs) Just gonna have um, a drink, take a moment. No, it was—it was, it was uh, <laughs> glitter. Was um, you know, as it does in real life, it was clinging to me. I couldn't escape mm-hmm. it. It just kept kept popping up. No, absolutely. Um, all
3: right. So we've got an idea of the many things that the book covers, some of where it came from. So I'd love to kind of get into some of the the meat of the book, really, and start with a deceptively simple question. I think that is much easier for me to ask than it is to answer. So. I I acknowledge that I'm putting you in a difficult spot here. (laughs) My question is, how does glitter work emotionally?
1: Well, um, glitter evokes really strong emotions. It's definitely a a love it or hate it type of thing. Um, I, I talk in the book about how, this love-hate relationship gets represented throughout popular culture. So I I, I ended up watching a lot of Peppa Pig. Um, I don't have any kids. Um, so people with kids, that is um, you know, <laughs> that's something that they are burdened with on a daily basis, but um, Peppa Pig was new to me. And um, you know, in that cartoon, there's um, a, a couple episodes where all the children find glitter to be mesmerizing and all the, ch- uh, all the parents find it to be obnoxious. Um, I'm also thinking, I, I didn't write about this in the book because it just happened last month, but um, there was this perfect kind of glitter news story where I guess there was a Knicks game And the halftime dancers or whatever you call it, I'm not a sports person, like midpoint dancers came out and um, I guess they had a a bunch of like body glitter and then were shaking it everywhere. And then after this little show, the floor was covered in glitter. And so they were worried that the basketball players wouldn't be able to, you know, safely (laughs) resume the game. And so Spike Lee and all these other um, celebrities were actually like on the (laughs) the court trying to like scoop up the glitter and clean it up. And so to me, that was just a, a really a quintessential glitter moment, right? So that it it easily goes from being a source of joy and, you know, this this fascinating spectacle to something that's a nuisance that needs needs cleaning up. Um, And when I was thinking about, um, you know, the other books in the Object Lessons series, I I didn't want to... I don't want to stress too much this love or hate thing because I was like, well, maybe all objects, you know, evoke strong emotions. But then I was was looking at this series and thinking, you know, people don't really have strong feelings about refrigerators or x-rays or socks, you know, as as fascinating as those things are and their their cultural histories are. But um, they really do about glitter. People really, um, yeah, have strong feelings about glitter.
3: Absolutely. Um, Just even the dichotomy I sort of flippantly said at the beginning of shiny or annoying uh, kind of sums up a lot of things there. In terms of the strong emotions, um, you point out in the book that maybe everyone does have strong emotions around glitter, but there are certainly some communities that might be more associated, um, either in popular perception, in terms of cultural practice both more um, with glitter than others. So can we turn to one of those communities, um, the queer community, and perhaps either intersecting or in addition, communities of colour? Why do those communities maybe have particular connections to glitter?
1: Well, glitter is typically associated with Excess, so it's um, adornment. It's supposedly frivolous and "quote unquote" extra. It's not restrained, and those um, those kinds of associations have always followed feminine people and LGBTQ plus people as well as people of color. Um, so, in the book, I, I do a bit of digging to try to uncover the roots of those associations. Um, So to just give one example, I look at this famous essay from 1913 by a European architect named Adolf Luce, and the essay is called Ornament and Crime, which already gives you a sense of what his opinion about, you know, adornment might be. But he has this claim, um, which is that the evolution of culture is synonymous with the removal of ornament from utilitarian objects. And so that that essay was really... if people don't know, really rooted in, you know, racist and eugenicist ideas about, um, what cultures and what types of people were more advanced, right? So this idea that uh, a more advanced European culture would not have a lot of, um, I don't know, I think British people call it faff, like a lot of junk, <laughs> like a lot of, you know, that it would have a more uh, simplistic aesthetic and that anyone that has a sort of an extra aesthetic would be backwards in, in some way. Um, And Lou's had all sorts of problems. He was also a sexual abuser, so not not the best person on the planet. Um, But I think that's just a very pervasive ideal that um, we can see, you know, continuing um, into this century. So um, I also look at a scholar named Jillian Hernandez, um, who talks, her book is from a couple years ago, and she talks about how Black and Latina um, feminine folks are often marked as excessive in terms of their hairstyle, makeup, jewelry, clothing, and and so forth. Um, so long story short, I think ideas about excess are not neutral, but always bound up with various um, prejudices. But at the same time, we we see that marginalized people embrace or reclaim that excess in order to literally be seen. And that's I, I talk about that as a crucial aspect of, of glitter, how it catches light and therefore brings to the eye people who've been historically ignored, whether it's, um, you know, uh, a drag queen or someone else who's who's been marginalized in some way.
3: Hmm interesting to uh, bring in that like physical element of glitter to solve a social and political problem or at least not solve but kind of literally bring attention to Um, I want to think about kind of other aspects in the book that you discuss glitter being um, used for some of which I was more familiar with the association for example between glitter and the queer community but you also have some examples that I at least personally was less familiar with um, so I'd love to ask you to tell us a bit about ways that glitter can be used as an effective political tactic. Um, and it seems to kind of be useful for this for a number of reasons. So can
1: you take us through this? Yeah, so I, I look at a series of glitter bombings. Um, this, this kind of started as a phenomenon that... Um, in the 2010s, but has continued, um, I think, uh, Minnesota was the first first known instance of glitter bombing. But more recently, it's been used in uh, Mexico with feminist protesters and um, Scotland with anti fascist protesters. And um, a lot of these activists who use um, glitter. um, So you know, they they throw it at homophobic politicians or uh, other figureheads. So they've reported that they choose this object or the substance precisely because it's harmless or they think of it as harmless, right? As opposed to throwing a hard object like a milkshake or (laughs) something else. I don't know if people remember the the old milkshake throwing days, but um, yeah, or, you know, obviously it's less dangerous than punching someone. Um, But That sort of early perception of glitter being this um, harmless substance has has gotten a little more complicated recently. So um, first off, there's that environmentalist backlash I was referring to. So this idea of glitter as harmless or useless has really changed in that sense. And also there's been a few um, folks, politicians who've been glitter bombed, who've actually tried to prosecute the glitter bombers for assault. Um, And that has not been very successful, but you can see how, um, I think what's really interesting here is how complicated and contingent the status of of glitter is right so the very same person might um, write off glitter as frivolous um, but also claim that it's this violent tool right depending on um depending on the situation so uh, yeah that's something i explore throughout the book right is that glitter um, it's always changing depending on context so it's not just that people love it or hate it people think of it as useless or useful or harmless or harmful so it's um it's it's, it's a very contingent substance hmm
3: one element that i think enhances the contingentness of it um, that i'd like to add in to this pool of things we've already mentioned is the fact that glitter is often so cheap what do you think is so significant about this component of glitter
1: um that's another thing that these glitter bombers um reported is that you know glitter is really accessible right so um if you're looking for looking for tools with which to you know bring to a protest that's um that's you know very easy um some of the Mexican um, feminist protesters um, made their own glitter. So apparently they were using um, sugar and food dye. And so, yeah, you can see how glitter is just this tactic that can be easily adopted by, by anyone. You don't have to plan for it. Um, but I think that the cheapness of, of glitter also goes back to those um, discriminatory logics we were, we were talking about earlier. So there's a, a long history of barring poor people from adorning themselves or being too, quote-unquote, extra. Um, in the book, I referenced, the sumptuary laws in Elizabethan England that said, you know, basically, you can't dress too extravagantly if you're poor. It would upset the whole social order. It would confuse everyone. Um, and so something like glitter, there's a way that it allows you to... Um, uh, in addition to these protest moments, I think it allows people to achieve the effects of extravagance and visibility that something like, you know, gold or or diamonds would offer, but at a much lower price. Um, but then we can see how certain powers that be might not like you to have access to that shortcut. So it's all about sort of, um, you know, the ways in which glitter again can be. Um, uh, used by these marginalized groups, but then also um, becomes denigrated because of their association with marginalized groups.
2: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie smart, protein plus, and keto. These are two-minute meals. Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
3: No, that that's that's useful to add in. Turning to a completely different population um, of people who are fascinated by glitter, let's talk about children because uh, they are, you know, pretty obviously really into the sparkly, the shiny, the glittery. And this is something I was definitely aware of. I don't know how you could not be aware of it. But I admit, not something I had really thought about. So can you take us through some of the thinking that you do in the book to consider the implications of children's like of this sort of
1: thing? Yeah, so I was really fascinated to learn that um, scientists now think that Children's attraction and, and humans' attraction actually to shiny things is related to our hardwired attunement to seeking out water for survival. So anything that's kind of like sparkling or, you know, um, is catching light makes us think like, oh, maybe that's a, you know, I'm thinking of like someone like crawling through a desert, right, and looking for an oasis. Um, so they, they, the the scientific community does think that there's something um, pretty innate about the fact that we're, um, you know, we're drawn to these sparkly shiny things i've also heard similar theories about fire that that's uh um, we're fascinated by fire because it's you know an aspect of our survival to you know to have heat but um so and i guess that kind of feeds into my um part of my being a glitter apologist right is to say we we literally can't help it like people that love glitter it's just it's it's you know we can't we can't stop ourselves it's innate so you should you should leave us alone um But, you know, I I also absolutely understand glitter is not for everyone. Um, So, again, parents find it very irritating. I interviewed a friend who is an art teacher, and she was like, absolutely not over my dead body. (laughs) Will there ever be glitter in my classroom? Um, So, yeah, and and every parent I've spoken to has said things like, you know, if you had kids, you you wouldn't love glitter as much as you do. So, um, yeah, touche. (laughs)
3: fair enough still interesting to consider the kind of just how deeply built in is this I'd like to um, ask you a little bit more about something that we've mentioned already but perhaps isn't necessarily put into the current conversation in a way that it seems like it probably should be from your book is on the one hand this idea that you mentioned that um, glitter as we might think of it now kind of the super synthetic kind actually might just be sort of the current version of shiny in adornment that we've been doing it for a while. Um, and putting that kind of into conversation with very, I think, pretty new forms of glitter that are advertised very specifically as being eco-friendly. Um, sort of, oh, look at this new type of shiny eyeshadow and it's special and new because it has this aspect to it. How can we maybe put this new trend into this longer history?
1: Yeah, well, um, I try to show in the book that we've really gone, as you're suggesting, we've really gone full circle in terms of us um, going back to the natural roots of, of glitter. And Maybe the easiest way to explain this is, is to turn back to etymology right into that fact that I mentioned, which is that um, glitter was a verb before it was a noun. So meaning that it was a property of things and of natural things in particular. So um, as I was saying, water glitters in the sun, uh, snow glitters, minerals and gems glitter, fire glitters, you know, so on and so forth. And now that we're shifting to these eco glitters um, which are they they're made up of all sorts of different things but um algae for example and mica and and, and various other natural materials i, I kind of think of us as returning to that original sense of glitter as a property of nature rather than just a, a commercial product hmm. interesting to
3: i can imagine going into a store selling something like that and being like did you know you were a part of this wider historical trend i imagine that probably wouldn't necessarily go down so well as much as it actually seems quite accurate We've mentioned then the glitter backlash um, and kind of the fact that you, I mean, you literally started off by saying you're a glitter apologist. Um, So there's still very much some amount of debate going on here. Can we now
1: go into a bit of why you think this backlash deserves scrutiny? Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, this is my hobby horse. I'm very excited <laughs> to uh, point some things out here. Um, so, first off, scientists have estimated that plastic-based glitter, um, which again, is, as we were just saying, not all glitter is made of plastics. Um, so, plastic-based glitter makes up less than one percent of the microplastics that pollute the environment, um, and a the majority of microplastics are coming from things like, uh, clothing fibers. Um, so a lot of our clothing now is uh, made with synthetic materials. Every time we wash, you know, every time you wash your Jack Wolfskin, uh, fleece or your North face fleece, uh, little bits of plastic are, are coming off and going through the drain and, and so on. Also tires. Um, so every time we drive a little bit of, um, plastic comes off and then ends up, eventually in the ocean. So uh, yeah, glitter is not, uh, (laughs) the ocean is not chock full of glitter, uh, not at all. And so, you know, to me at best, that means that this glitter backlash is kind of a a cultural clickbait, right? An attention grabber that just doesn't really show the bigger picture. And at worst, it might be a matter of uh, discrimination considering what we're saying about how glitter is so widely associated with queer people and people of color and working class people. So something that just so happens to be Um, associated with these marginalized groups gets singled out kind of unfairly. That's, that's part of my suspicion here. Um, So yeah, to target something so, so specific um, whether in, you know, these journalistic accounts that that are talking about how bad glitter is or in actual policy, it feels, feels a little questionable to me, I have to say. So
3: then what is glitter's place in an era that's so plastic filled?
1: I think it does still have a place. So there's those eco glitters we were mentioning um, edible glitters. Um, I sh- there is a big elephant in the room that I haven't mentioned, which is um, the European Union has instituted a ban on plastic-based glitter as of this year. Um, it, that includes other things. Um, it's not just glitter, but that was kind of what made the headlines. So things that have what we call microbeads, anything that has these um, you know, very small um, microplastic synthetic uh, pieces that again could end up in the ocean although again that's not that's not the main source of, of um, glitter is not the main source of microplastic pollution yet again um, but yeah so uh, there's been stories of people rushing out to buy you know panicking <laughs> trying to buy the last packets of glitter on the shelf and as far as I understand um, if, if there's things on the shelf they can still be um, sold but no new microplastics like glitter can be manufactured and sold going forward. Um, and I don't, I don't foresee that happening, um, where I am in the United States, but it does show that that public thinking is, is shifting of course. Um, but all that said the the key word here is plastic based. So biodegradable eco glitters, edible glitters are still fine. Um, and so in my mind, part of the challenge here is just shifting our definitions of glitter and maybe even shifting our expectations for it. So in the book, I write about how, um, one of the major biodegradable cosmetic glitter brands has taken um, not just plastic but aluminum out of their formula, and then they explain that that makes their product softer. So when you're putting it on your face, it's not you know scratchy, and and so the idea here is you're going to sacrifice a little shininess. Um, but then you're going to get a little more comfort. And so to, to my mind, this is just part of the continuing evolution of glitter, we're going to continue to revise our expectations of it. And we're going to revise our perceptions of um, what it actually needs to consist of. And so to me, glitter is just kind of like this open, <laughs> open category, and we don't know exactly how it's going to evolve in the future.
3: All the better to have a book that kind of raises these questions and goes hang on a second you think it's this narrow thing actually look at the possibilities go forth explore so thank you for giving us that sort of highlights tour of the book um i do however have one final question it does sound like you're going to continue to be a glitter apologist at least in in some ways yes <laughs> for life <laughs> for life all right then um but of course one can be many things so is there anything that you are currently working on um or have been working on you'd like to share even if it's not glitter related
1: well I was about to say winter vacation is <laughs> my number one project right now which is sort of uh, glittery um but in terms of my next um scholarly project um I'm I'm calling it conservative camp right now, and the idea is that it's going to be a collection co-edited with um, my bestie Darren Dewitt, who happens to be a political scientist. And our idea here is that um, camp has become a central element of far right discourse and political performance, and that's not been widely addressed, um, except in the fact, uh, in the sense of um, you know, thinking about someone like Donald Trump, um, people on the left kind of assume. Someone like Donald Trump is not in on the joke, but I think we have to <laughs> we have to consider the fact that he very much might be in on the joke. So he might uh, um, be employing what uh, Susan Sontag would call uh, deliberate camp rather than naive camp. Um, and we've been we've been doing a lot of reading. There's a really great book I would recommend um, titled "That's Not Funny: How Conservatives Make Comedy Work for Them" by uh, Nick Marks and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Matt Sinkowitz. Um, and they talk about how academic scholars um, who tend to be left wing have pretty much ignored the existence of right wing comedy, which is actually in full swing today. So some of the most high, highest rated comedy programs um, on cable TV are not, you know, the Daily Show. They're not <laughs> these left uh, leaning shows, but actually right wing right-leaning shows. And um, so the point here is that we want to, with our project, Erin and I want to um, broaden out a little bit from comedy to think about camp and how this um, mode, which has historically been associated with queer communities. So again, there's, a, there's I guess, glitter is sort of hiding in, in the shadows there, right? That um, all these campy elements like dressing up in glitter, or dressing up in, in drag, we tend to associate those um, with the left wing, but we see that those modes are actually being harnessed by by the right. And so, um, yeah, I think it should be interesting, but disturbing to <laughs> embark on this project, which is why I need a vacation first. Quite possibly.
3: Um, and a vacation is very much deserved. Um, but if anyone who's listening wants to, especially in the festive period, get more interested um, and learn more about glitter they can of course read the book that is titled Glitter. It's very (laughs) straightforward you'll definitely be able to find it. It was published by Bloomsbury in 2022. Uh, Nicole best of luck with your future projects and thank you so much for being on the podcast.
1: Yeah thank you.